Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part four of Lost in Translation. In this series of podcasts, we have been discussing issues related to Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. In the past three podcasts, we have uncovered a number of very interesting aspects to this issue as we have dived not only into the paper written by two BYU professors, Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig J. Osler, that was published in the year 2000 and which served as the impetus for this podcast in the first place, that paper titled The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon. But we have also looked at the church essay on Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, and we have done a deep dive into the original sources that are quoted both in the 2000 paper as well as in the church essay. We have also done a close reading of the scriptures related to the issue, specifically Doctrine and Covenants section 8 and 9, which have to do with Oliver Cowdery's attempt to translate the Book of Mormon, his failed attempt to translate the Book of Mormon. And tonight's episode, which should be the concluding episode in this series, we're going to return to where we started, to the paper that was written by the two BYU professors in the year 2000. As you will recall, the entire purpose of this paper was to discount the testimony of David Whitmer, and specifically the testimony of David Whitmer as to the method that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. The entire thesis of this paper is that Joseph Smith did not, repeat, not use a seer stone in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. Rather, he used the Urim and Thummim, i.e. the Urim and Thummim, that were contained in a silver bow and attached to a breastplate. That's the way that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith does not say how he translated the Book of Mormon. All he said was that he translated it by the gift and power of God. Oliver Cowdery, the principal scribe for the Book of Mormon as we have it today, is, as we have seen, the go-to guide to try and get statements that correspond or support or promote the dominant narrative of how it was that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, i.e. without a stone in a hat. And yet we have seen that when we actually looked at the church essays quote of Oliver Cowdery and then went to the original source where we found out the rest of what Oliver Cowdery had to say, even Oliver Cowdery says that Joseph Smith put his face in a hat as he dictated the text of the Book of Mormon to him. In that interesting quote, which came from the fall of 1830 and which we went over in detail in part three of this series, Oliver Cowdery said that Joseph Smith would look through the spectacles at the engravings on the gold plates. And then after that, he would put his face in a hat and dictate the text of the Book of Mormon and his scribe, or as he put it there, his amanuensis, would write it down. And he, Oliver Cowdery, being the scribe for most of the Book of Mormon, is obviously talking about his personal experience, that as he was writing down the text of the Book of Mormon, while Joseph Smith dictated it, Joseph Smith had his face in a hat. We talked in part one about why it is that this paper was likely written by these BYU professors, specifically addressing the credibility of David Whitmer, and concluded that the most likely scenario is because Elder Russell M. Nelson quoted David Whitmer to that effect in a 1993 Ensign article. 
seven years before this paper was published. We have gone through most of this paper and are now getting to the final section, which is really the reason this entire paper was published. Once again, this is in question and answer format. This is on page four of the internet version of this paper. Once again, this paper is titled The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon and was published in a collection of such papers in a volume titled Revelations of the Restoration, a Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants and Other Modern Revelations, published by Deseret Book in the year 2000. On page four of that document, it states, question, in addition to statements of the prophet, the text of Doctrine and Covenants, section nine, and the testimony of Oliver Cowdery, who else has described the process by which the Book of Mormon was translated? Answer, perhaps prime among their number would be David Whitmer. Then question, what light does he shed on the matter? Answer, precious little. And then it goes on with their answer to explain why it is that David Whitmer, in the opinion of these two authors, sheds precious little insight on the method of translation of the Book of Mormon. But before I get to that, and their number of reasons, they actually give one, two, three, four, five, six reasons why it is that David Whitmer should not be believed when he describes how it was that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by use of the seer stone in his hat. But note first that the answer to that first question is, perhaps prime among their number would be David Whitmer. The two BYU professors are obviously aware of other witnesses who say the same thing as David Whitmer, because they say, who else has described the process by which the Book of Mormon was translated and the answer, perhaps prime among their number, would be David Whitmer. Now, they're not going to mention the other witnesses that they're aware of who actually corroborate David Whitmer's testimony. And the reason they're not going to is because they want to discount David Whitmer's testimony. And they know if they start mentioning the other witnesses who testify to a similar thing as what David Whitmer described, then they're going to be undercutting their own position. But let's mention those here briefly since the two BYU professors seem reluctant to go into this aspect. If you have a witness statement such as that by David Whitmer or any witness, it's one thing for one witness to say something, but it's another thing entirely if that witness is corroborated in their version of events by other witnesses who describe a similar version of events. So actually, these other witnesses, of which the two BYU professors are aware and yet don't want to talk about, corroborate and strengthen David Whitmer's testimony. Those witnesses include the other witnesses to the Book of Mormon. There's not only David Whitmer, there is also Martin Harris who corroborates his testimony. Martin Harris is not mentioned in this paper. There's also Oliver Cowdery who corroborates the testimony, but only if you go back to the original source document where he is quoted as teaching about this in the fall of 1830 in Ohio on his way through to Missouri to preach the gospel to the Lamanites. So let's stop here and underscore this for a second. All three of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, and Oliver Cowdery, all of them are united on the fact that Joseph Smith put his face in a hat and dictated the text of the Book of Mormon. Martin Harris and David Whitmer add the additional fact that Joseph Smith put his seer stone into the hat prior to putting his face over the hat and dictating the Book of Mormon. So this is an interesting scenario that the three witnesses whose testimony appears in the front of every printed copy of the Book of Mormon testifying as to the vision they received from the angel declaring that the Book of Mormon was true, all three of these witnesses also declare that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by dictating it with his face in a hat. 
But in addition to these three witnesses, we also have the testimony of Emma Smith, who is on record as stating that Joseph Smith translated the text of the Book of Mormon, at least as we have it today, by putting a seer stone into a hat and putting his face over the hat, and that even when she was a scribe, she would write what he dictated as he had his face in the hat. In addition to Emma Smith, we also have Joseph Knight Sr., who was a friend of the Smith family and an early convert to Mormonism, who also corroborates this testimony of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. In other words, every single person that we can find who is a witness to what happened is agreed on the basic fact that Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon with his face in a hat, and yet that is the position that these two BYU professors are seeking to controvert in this paper. No wonder they don't want to mention these other witness testimonies. As I said in part one, this paper is not a historical investigation. It is a polemical piece. It is designed to defend the dominant narrative that the church created and taught exclusively for about a hundred years, up to the year 2013, when the essay came out on the church website. This article being written 13 years before that is perhaps a last gasp in an official church publication written by two official church BYU professors that are still trying to defend that dominant narrative. And the links to which they are willing to go in order to defend that narrative not only show how committed they are to maintain that narrative, but also goes to show how the overwhelming evidence is against their position. At least when you know the evidence, the evidence that they know that they're not willing to let you know. So now going back to this next question on page four, what light does he, i.e. David Whitmer, what light does David Whitmer shed on the matter? Their answer is precious little. Going on with their answer now. The testimony of David Whitmer, which is laid forth below, clearly contradicts the principles established by the Lord in this revelation. And there they're talking about section nine. Now they'll get to the reason that they say it contradicts that revelation. And the reason they're going to get to is because they believe that section nine says you've got to study it out in your mind. And if David Whitmer is correct, well, Joseph Smith really didn't study it out in his mind. He just looked into the stone in his hat and the translation was given to him. They go on. It is also at odds with the testimonies of both Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And yet when we actually look at the testimonies of Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, we find that Joseph Smith didn't say a whole lot about it. And it is not in contradiction to what Oliver Cowdery says, at least if you're able to look at the original source and find out what he really taught as early as the fall of 1830 going on. In our judgment, Mr. Whitmer, ooh, so formal, suddenly it's Mr. Whitmer. Mr. Whitmer is not a reliable source on this matter. We are entirely respectful of and grateful for the testimony to which he appended his name as one of the three witnesses of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and its divine origin. Okay, hang on a second. I'm glad they're grateful for his testimony of the Book of Mormon. The problem is, and the problem they don't deal with is, the fact that they're going to say that David Whitmer was telling the truth when he was a witness for the Book of Mormon as one of the three witnesses, but when he is testifying and a witness to the manner in which Joseph Smith actually dictated and translated the Book of Mormon, suddenly he becomes unreliable. This is a difficult position to maintain because what you're saying is that at one point he's telling the truth, but at another point he's lying. As a general principle, in legal matters, if you're put in the position of having to admit that your client is lying on one aspect of his testimony, then you open the door to the very real likelihood that he's lying on the other aspect of his testimony. It's very difficult to maintain this position. Put another way, if David Whitmer was lying about the method in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, 
why should we not also believe that he was lying when he testified as one of the three witnesses about the truth of the Book of Mormon? This is a difficulty that these two professors never seek to resolve. Instead, they simply say they're grateful for his testimony as one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and then they go on. That, however, does not make him a competent witness to the process of translation. We too, like countless others, are competent witnesses of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Now that statement alone is problematic. I expect what they mean by that is that they have received a spiritual witness that the Book of Mormon is true. David Whitmer, on the other hand, goes far beyond that and says that he saw an angel come down and show him the plates along with the other two witnesses and that the angel testified to them that the Book of Mormon was true. That's a little bit different. But these two professors say that they are also, like countless others, competent witnesses of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Our knowledge, they go on, our knowledge of how it was translated, however, is limited to that which has come through the channels ordained by the Lord for that purpose. And here they're going to get to the revelations and doctrine and covenants. As to David Whitmer's explanation, it should be remembered that he never looked into the Urim and Thummim, nor translated anything. His testimony of how the Book of Mormon was translated is hearsay. Okay, let's deal with this hearsay argument for just a bit because technically, as a legal matter, this paper is correct. David Whitmer never actually would have looked through the Urim and Thummim. He never would have seen personally what it is that he says that he described. And yet, the process of writing history is not the same thing as a legal case presented in court. The legal underpinnings for the hearsay rule is that if hearsay is admitted in court, then the person against whom, the party against whom, the hearsay is admitted does not have the opportunity to cross-examine the person who actually made the statement in the first place. We're left with somebody else saying what that person said. This violates the constitutional right to confront witnesses against you. Once again, if hearsay is admitted, you don't have the ability to confront the person who made the original statement that is now being admitted in hearsay. That is one of the primary reasons that hearsay is not admissible in a court of law. When we're dealing with history, however, we are never going to have the opportunity to cross-examine anybody because they are all dead and gone and all we have left are the statements that they made or statements that other people who knew them made. Now, it's certainly true that we have to consider the fact that this is a hearsay statement and we must always be cautious of hearsay statements like this. And yet, on the other side of the equation, we also have to take into account that David Whitmer was very closely associated with Joseph Smith during these early years, during the translation process. He's not somebody who just came along 20 years later and was never around when Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon and is now coming up with this idea about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. He is a person who was a close associate of Joseph Smith. And it is quite likely that he got this description of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from none other than Joseph Smith himself. Now, he doesn't say that that's where he got it from, and Joseph Smith never says he told David Whitmer, but it is a very likely conclusion from the evidence. In addition to that, we also have, once again, the corroborating testimony from all these other witnesses who were close associates of Joseph Smith and who were present and in the vicinity when Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon, and those other witnesses support David Whitmer in what it is that he says about the method of translation. So even though David Whitmer's statement is hearsay, that does not 
close the issue. We also have to remember that even if what David Whitmer says is hearsay, it is hearsay only to the part of what Joseph Smith saw when he put his face in the hat. David Whitmer certainly was around to see Joseph Smith put his face in the hat. We know that Oliver Cowdery was definitely around to see Joseph Smith put his face in the hat as he testified. We know that Emma Smith was definitely around to see Joseph Smith put a seer stone in the hat and put his face in the hat, which she testified. We also know that Martin Harris was definitely around and a scribe to see Joseph Smith put his stone in the hat and then put his face over the hat and dictate. So this seemingly triumphant conclusion of this paragraph by these two BYU professors designating what David Whitmer said as hearsay, as if that ends all inquiry, is probably a bit premature on their part. They go on, spanning a period of 20 years, 1869 to 1888, some 70 recorded testimonies about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon claimed David Whitmer as their source. Right, he took it very seriously, his obligation that he believed he had received from the angel who he saw in the vision, the three witness vision, that he was required to bear his testimony of the Book of Mormon. And even though he left the LDS church over disputes he had with Joseph Smith in 1838, I believe, he continued to bear his testimony of the Book of Mormon throughout the rest of his life. Indeed, that's one of the things that we as missionaries and as Mormons trumpet from the housetops is that even though David Whitmer and in fact all three of the three witnesses left the church, they never denied their testimony of the Book of Mormon. The statement goes on, though there are a number of inconsistencies in these accounts. So here, the authors, without going actually into what these inconsistencies may be between the different accounts that David Whitmer gave over a period of 20 years, this paper is going to suggest that these inconsistencies tend to undermine the credibility of David Whitmer. One wonders if these two BYU professors would apply the same analysis to the inconsistencies in the different versions of the first vision that Joseph Smith gave over the period of his life. Do those similarly undermine Joseph Smith's credibility, even as they suggest that the inconsistencies in David Whitmer's account of the translation of the Book of Mormon should undermine his credibility? Going back to the statement, though there are a number of inconsistencies in these accounts, David Whitmer was repeatedly reported to have said, that after the loss of the 116 pages, the Lord took both the plates and the Urim and Thummim from the prophet, never to be returned. In their stead, the paper goes on, in their stead, David Whitmer maintained the prophet used an oval-shaped, chocolate-colored seer stone, slightly larger than an egg. And this is what this entire paper has been building up to, is a statement by David Whitmer regarding the seer stone that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon, an oval-shaped, chocolate-colored seer stone, slightly larger than an egg. Thus, everything we have in the Book of Mormon, according to Mr. Whitmer, was translated by placing the chocolate-colored stone in a hat into which Joseph would bury his head so as to close out the light. Well, not only according to Mr. Whitmer, but also according to Mr. Cowdery, Mr. Harris, Mr. Knight Sr., and Ms. Smith. But they're not going to mention them. While doing so, he could see, quote, and now they're quoting from the David Whitmer statement, while doing so, he could see, quote, an oblong piece of parchment on which the hieroglyphics would appear, end of quote, and below the ancient writing, the translation would be given in English. Joseph would then read this to Oliver Cowdery, who in turn would write it. If he did so correctly, the characters in the interpretation would disappear and be replaced by other characters with their interpretation. What do professors Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig J. Osler think of David Whitmer's account? They're happy to tell us. Such an explanation is, in our judgment, simply fiction. Well, simply fiction? In other words, David Whitmer just made it up? Why would David Whitmer make up such a story? 
They have an answer for that too, for the purpose of demeaning Joseph Smith and to undermine the validity of the revelations he received after translating the Book of Mormon. Now, I've got to ask you this. How does this make any sense at all? Here's David Whitmer, who is one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, who takes his witness of the Book of Mormon so seriously that he bears his witness throughout the rest of his life, even after he leaves the church far behind. He takes out a full-page ad in several newspapers in order to repeat his testimony later on in life, after he finds out that some reporter somewhere has said that he denied it. And then he has his testimony inscribed on his headstone so he can continue to bear testimony of the Book of Mormon after his death. Why is a person such as David Whitmer, who is so committed to his testimony of the Book of Mormon, why on earth would he intentionally make up a story about Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon to try and demean Joseph Smith and undermine his testimony of the Book of Mormon? That makes no sense at all, at least not to me. But what they want to say is he's trying to demean Joseph Smith and undermine the revelations he received after he translated the Book of Mormon, because of course it was after that that David Whitmer left the church. And indeed, it did have something to do with some of the revelations that Joseph Smith was receiving. But if David Whitmer is trying to undermine Joseph Smith and the revelations he received, why would he try and make up something that would undermine the Book of Mormon translation? Wouldn't he come up with something to try and undermine the revelations Joseph Smith received? This is where these two BYU professors' commitment to the argument seems to get in the way of their ability to think rationally. But they have a number of reasons to support this conclusion that David Whitmer is not to be believed in this regard. We invite the reader to consider the following. First, here they get to their reasons. First, for more than 50 years, David Whitmer forthrightly rejected Joseph Smith, declaring him to be a fallen prophet. Though he never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon, comma, full stop, though he never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon, that's the whole point, isn't it? If he never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon, why would he make up a story to undermine, intentionally undermine, his own testimony of the Book of Mormon? If he's making up the story about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, and he's doing it in order to demean Joseph Smith, he's at the same time undermining his own testimony. Once again, doesn't make any sense. We'll start with that sentence again and go past the comma. Though he, David Whitmer, never denied his testimony, of the Book of Mormon, he rejected virtually everything else associated with the ministry of Joseph Smith and the restoration of the gospel. Again, if he's going to make up a story, why not make up a story that undermines something other than the Book of Mormon? And once again, they run into the problem of if they're going to allege that David Whitmer was capable and of a character suitable to making up stories to undermine Joseph Smith, the other side of that coin is that they have to admit that David Whitmer would have had the same character and been capable of making up stories to support Joseph Smith in his early days, i.e. if he made up a demeaning story about Joseph Smith, why not make up a story that was supportive of Joseph Smith, i.e. the testimony of the Book of Mormon that's printed in the front of every copy of the Book of Mormon. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The paper goes on, his rejection, this is David Whitmer's rejection, included both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, which were restored during the time the Book of Mormon was being translated. And, of course, the revelations which would eventually constitute the Doctrine and Covenants. Again, the same argument applies. I won't repeat it here. Second, now they get to the second argument. Second, according to David Whitmer's account of how the Book of Mormon was translated, Joseph Smith was the instrument of transmission. Okay, here's where they get into the idea that if David Whitmer is correct, 
Joseph Smith did not have to study it out in his mind. Okay, Joseph Smith was the instrument of transmission, while translation rested solely with the Lord. This is simply a reflection of the notion of divine dictation, which holds that every word of Scripture comes from God himself. If David Whitmer's account is to be accepted, Revelation also includes spelling and punctuation. Okay, now they're going to get to the part of all the errors that were in the original text of the Book of Mormon. If David Whitmer is correct and God is giving the translation of the Book of Mormon directly to Joseph Smith by virtue of the seer stone and what he's seeing in the light of the seer stone, then how do we account for all the punctuation and spelling errors in the original text of the Book of Mormon? It's a good question, but I think the logical resolution of that question is probably not going to be something that these two BYU professors would be in agreement with. They go on, this notion is at odds with the explanation found in Doctrine and Covenants 8 and 9, which details how revelation comes. In this respect, Richard Anderson observed that Whitmer, quote, after decades of reflection outside of the church, concluded that no modification could possibly be made in any revelation. This highly rigid view of these revelations matched his highly rigid view of the origin of the Book of Mormon. And then they quote from Richard Anderson's paper, By the Gift and Power of God, page 84. So here they're talking about a tight translation theory of the Book of Mormon. Now, you may have heard of the tight translation theory and the loose translation theory. A tight translation theory would say that every word was given to Joseph Smith. A loose translation theory would be that Joseph Smith was just given some sort of amorphous ideas, which he then cloaked in his own language as he dictated the Book of Mormon. Now, typically... Having been an apologist for a number of years, what I know about apologists is that where a tight translation of the Book of Mormon helps the argument for the Book of Mormon's authenticity, apologists will typically go with a tight translation model. If it needs a loose translation, then they'll go with the loose translation model. I should insert here that Royal Skousen, who has more than any person on the face of the earth, done an in-depth investigation over a period of many, many years into the original texts of the Book of Mormon, and by that I mean the original manuscript, the printer's manuscript, the 1830 Book of Mormon, and every single edition thereafter, and is published extensively on the subject. In his critical edition of the Book of Mormon, he concludes that in fact it was a tight translation that Joseph Smith dictated of the Book of Mormon. However, these two BYU professors are going to say that David Whitmer and his explanation and his description promote a tight translation of the Book of Mormon, or as they call it, divine dictation. Whereas section 9 that talks about study it out in your mind, as well as a quote from Brigham Young that they're going to quote here in a second, support a loose translation of the Book of Mormon. So, by contrast, the paper goes on, by contrast, Brigham Young observed, should the Lord Almighty send an angel to rewrite the Bible, it would in many places be very different from what it now is. And I will even venture to say that if the Book of Mormon were now to be rewritten, in many instances, it would materially differ from the present translation. So there's Brigham Young, way after the fact, talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon and giving his opinion that if it were to be retranslated, it would differ materially in many instances from the current version. However, of course, Brigham Young was nowhere around when the Book of Mormon was actually being dictated, as David Whitmer was, and so his comment in this regard is simply speculation. The article goes on. David Whitmer repeatedly said that if a word was misspelled, the translator would not be able to go on until it had been corrected. This hardly allows for the 3,913 changes that have been made between the first edition of the Book of Mormon and the edition 
presently in use. So the argument here is that if David Whitmer is correct, and if the translation was given directly to Joseph Smith by God through use of the seer stone, then there would not be any of these errors in spelling and errors in punctuation. So let's look into this argument a little bit further. First off, we have to recognize this is not a historical argument. It is a theological argument. In other words, they're going from talking about the sources and the witnesses and what they say to talking about theology. The argument is that if we take David Whitmer, and by the way, not only David Whitmer, but all these other witnesses that they're not talking about, if we take their testimony at face value, and if God gave the translation of the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith, then how do we account for all the punctuation and spelling errors in the original version of the Book of Mormon? Because obviously God would not make any spelling or punctuation errors. The first thing I want to say about this is that even here, even from a faithful Mormon perspective, within the confines of the dominant narrative of Book of Mormon translation, this argument doesn't make any sense. Why? Because Joseph Smith was reading off the Book of Mormon and Oliver Cowdery was writing it down. Any spelling errors would be Oliver Cowdery's fault, wouldn't they? Not Joseph Smith's. He's dictating it. He's not spelling things out except perhaps for an unusual name here and there. But he's dictating the Book of Mormon. Oliver Cowdery's the one who's writing it down. So any spelling errors are Oliver Cowdery's. Additionally, within the dominant Mormon narrative, any punctuation errors were not Joseph Smith's either because it appears from what we have remaining of the original manuscript that there was very little to no punctuation at all in the original Book of Mormon. This is one of the reasons that it appears to have actually been dictated the way the witnesses say, is that Joseph Smith simply dictated the text of the Book of Mormon. He didn't get to an end of a sentence and say period, or in the middle of a sentence say comma or semicolon, as we might do today if we were dictating a letter or something else, or dictating a text message. Instead, he simply dictated without ever saying period, comma, semicolon, or any punctuation. And Oliver Cowdery appears to have written it down in a similar way without the punctuation. Remember the famous story that the punctuation was supplied not by Joseph Smith or Oliver Cowdery, but by the printer of the Book of Mormon. So even within the structure of the dominant narrative of the church, the narrative that these two BYU professors are defending, this argument doesn't seem to make any sense. Going on to their third reason to discount and reject David Whitmer's testimony. Third, if the process of translation was simply a matter of reading from a seer stone in a hat, surely Oliver Cowdery could do that as well, if not better than Joseph Smith. After all, Oliver was a school teacher. How then do we account for Oliver's inability to translate? Well, we've covered that in prior episodes too. First off, I think we can account for Oliver's inability to translate because for whatever reason, God told him in section 8 that all he had to do was ask God for the translation and God would give it to him. Oliver asked God for the translation, God doesn't give it to him, and then God in section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants upbraids Oliver Cowdery because he thought that God would give it to him if Oliver Cowdery just asked him for it. And no, I'm not making that up. Go back to the previous podcasts for further details on that score. But in section 9, God tells Oliver Cowdery that he failed because he didn't study it out in his mind. And we've talked in previous episodes about how that makes absolutely no sense. To study it out in your mind makes no sense for Oliver Cowdery to do in order to translate the Book of Mormon. And therefore, it appears to be a completely bogus reason that God or Joseph Smith is giving to Oliver Cowdery to explain away why it is that Oliver Cowdery failed 
to be able to translate. Also, we discussed in a prior podcast that it does not appear that Oliver Cowdery was told to put a seer stone in a hat and put his face over the hat and look into it in order to translate. He was supposed to translate by his gift, by his power. Joseph Smith's gift and power was the use of a seer stone. Oliver Cowdery's gift and power was the use of his divining rod, the rod of Aaron. Remember, we went over that in an earlier podcast. And even though it is not clear how Oliver Cowdery would use his divining rod in order to translate what does appear to be clear from section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants and its earlier incarnation in the 1833 Book of Commandments, is that that is the method that Oliver Cowdery was supposed to use in order to translate, or at least in order to attempt to translate. This paper goes on further. Regarding the use of a hat in translation, William Smith explained that the prophet used the Urim and Thummim attached to the breastplate by a rod that held the seer stone set in the rims of a bow before his eyes. And now they're going to quote from William Smith, Joseph Smith's brother. The instrument, this is the quote, the instrument caused a strain on Joseph's eyes, and he sometimes resorted to covering his eyes with a hat to exclude the light in part, period, end of quote. Now, this is a strange thing to include in their paper where they're arguing that David Whitmer should not be believed when he says that Joseph Smith put a seer stone in his hat and put his face over the hat in order to translate the Book of Mormon. Because now they're going to quote from Joseph Smith's own brother who also mentions the hat. This is the quote from William Smith that they include in this paper. The instrument caused a strain on Joseph's eyes and he sometimes resorted to covering his eyes with a hat to exclude the light in part. And there they quote to Smith, comma, Rod of Iron 1, comma, 3, February 1924-7. It's a strange quotation, but it is sufficient to allow someone who's curious like me to go to the original source and look it up. First off, February 1924? Are you kidding me? William Smith may have been Joseph Smith's younger brother, but he would have been over 100 years old as of 1924. Obviously, this is something that is being printed based upon an earlier statement of William Smith. And what I find is that William Smith was born in March of 1811. He was Joseph Smith's younger brother by about six years. And even though this publication came out In 1924, it is referring back to an interview with William Smith from 1890 or 1891, which was shortly before he passed away. Now, let's do the chronology. William Smith was born in 1811. That means in 1829, when the Book of Mormon was being translated, he was about 18 years old. At the time of this interview in 1890 or 1891, he was approximately 80 years old. And this was shortly before he was going to pass away. So he is remembering things from a very long time before, and that has to be taken into account when we are analyzing what it is that he says. Now, the February 1924 article in which William Smith is quoted appears to be a somewhat cleaned up version of the original, which was written down in 1890 or 1891, and the original is reproduced in Dan Vogel's Early Mormon Documents, Volume 1. There he titles it as William Smith Interview with J.W. Peterson and W.S. Pinder, 1890. It's pages 507 to 509 of that volume. Here's the way the original of this interview with William Smith, once again approximately 80 years old at the time of the interview, goes as he describes what happened back when he was 18 regarding Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. Explaining the expression as to the stones in the Urim and Thummim being set in two rims of a bow, remember that's how Joseph Smith described it, and it's also apparently how William Smith describes it, because he goes on to say, quote, 
A silver bow ran over one stone, under the other, around over that one, and under the first, in the shape of a horizontal figure eight, much like a pair of spectacles. Now, I'd heard this description before somewhere in my past as a member of the church, but only now am I recognizing that this is the source for that description, the figure eight description. This comes from William Smith, 1890. He goes on to say that they, the spectacles, this horizontal figure eight with the two stones in it, that they were much too large for Joseph, and he could only see through one at a time using sometimes one and sometimes the other. So here, this is where the description comes from that we've heard from time to time, that this breastplate was enormous. It was not the size of a regular man. It was really too big for Joseph Smith. And indeed, the spectacles themselves were way too big for a regular man to look through as we would look through a pair of glasses. And because they were so big, Joseph Smith could only look through one stone or the other at any given time. Once again, going back to the way that William Smith described it, that they were much too large for Joseph, and he could only see through one at a time, using sometimes one and sometimes the other. By putting his head in a hat, notice this, this is from the William Smith statement from 1890, always the hat is present in all of these witness statements, somewhere or other. By putting his head in a hat, or some dark object, it was not necessary to close one eye while looking through the stone with the other. In that way, sometimes when his eyes grew tired, he relieved them of the strain. Now, William Smith does not explain why it would be a strain to look through one seer stone or the other because they're so large. It is not immediately apparent to me as to why this would be a strain on a person's eyes any more than looking through one lens of a pair of glasses would be a strain on a person's eye. In other words, if I have one lens, I wear glasses, by the way. If I have one lens of my glasses and I'm looking through that one lens and have the other eye closed in order to see something, I'm not sure why that becomes a strain on the eye. At any rate, if it is a strain on the eye, it can be relieved by then switching that one lens over to my left eye and closing my right eye. But what William Smith says is that in order to relieve the strain that this caused, Joseph Smith would take one of the stones, apparently pop them out of the spectacles. If they're too big for him to look through, they're going to be too big for him to put in a hat, I would presume. But popping out one of the stones and putting it in the hat in order to translate. Going on with his statement, by putting his head in a hat or some dark object, it was not necessary to close one eye while looking through the stone with the other. In that way, sometimes when his eyes grew tired, he relieved them of the strain. He also said the Urim and Thummim was attached to the breastplate by a rod, which was fastened at the outer shoulder edge of the breastplate and to the end of the silver bow. This rod was just the right length so that when the Urim and Thummim was removed from before the eyes, it would reach to a pocket on the left side of the breastplate where the instrument was kept when not in use by the seer. So here is a very detailed description of the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate by William Smith given in 1890 or 1891. But even with the detailed description, we note that William Smith also includes the description of Joseph Smith putting his head in a hat, that's quote unquote, which he did sometimes, according to William Smith, when his eyes grew tired to relieve them of the strain. So as I say, it's not entirely clear why it is the authors of this paper are including this quote, or at least a reference to this quote, from William Smith when he mentions the hat, and the mentioning of the hat by William Smith tends to corroborate David Whitmer's mention of the hat, and also tends to undermine the entire position that is sought to be maintained by these two professors. Fourth, 
The fourth reason to not believe David Whitmer's statement is this. Joseph Smith repeatedly testified to having both the plates and the Urim and Thummim returned to him. He further testified that he translated from the plates by the use of the Urim and Thummim. Well, once again, we have seen that it wasn't Joseph Smith who came up with the phrase Urim and Thummim to describe his seer stone or the interpreters. The phrase Urim and Thummim was first suggested and then only speculatively as a description for the interpreters by William W. Phelps, and that as late as 1833. So when Joseph Smith testified, quote unquote, that he translated from the plates by the use of the Urim and Thummim, we don't know if he's talking about a seer stone or if he's talking about something else at that point because the phrase Urim and Thummim could mean either one. Fifth, David Whitmer gave inconsistent accounts of the instrument used to translate. You see, once again, he gives inconsistent accounts, which actually means that the people who are writing down what they say they heard from him write it down differently so it sounds inconsistent. We can't tell at this point whether David Whitmer is actually giving the inconsistent accounts or whether the people who are writing them down are missing a thing here or there, which makes it appear that the accounts given by David Whitmer are inconsistent. He gave many, many accounts, as this paper notes, and the more accounts you give of the same thing and the more different people you have writing down what it is you're saying on different occasions, the more likely it is that you're going to run into things that look like inconsistencies, whether they are true inconsistencies or whether they are not true inconsistencies. And once again, I have to ask the question, are these two BYU professors as concerned about the inconsistencies between Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision as they appear to be over the inconsistencies in David Whitmer's accounts of the translation process? Once again, they state David Whitmer gave inconsistent accounts of the instrument used to translate Thomas Wood Smith. So this is an individual, Thomas Wood Smith, in a published response about an interview he had with David Whitmer, who told him that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim in translating the Book of Mormon wrote. Oh my gosh. Okay, I've got to tell you what this is about. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, David Whitmer is giving all these accounts all over the place. Anybody can go to him, and many people do, to ask about his testimony of the Book of Mormon, and he testifies about his experience, what he saw, what he knows about the translation of the Book of Mormon, as well as his experience being one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And what happens is that this guy, Thomas Wood Smith, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but it's very difficult to understand what it is that these professors are talking about when you read it, unless you understand what it is that's going on in advance. So what happens is that this guy, Thomas Wood Smith, goes to David Whitmer, asks him about his testimony. And according to Thomas Wood Smith, David Whitmer slipped and actually said that Joseph Smith translated using the Urim and Thummim instead of his seer stone. And so Thomas Wood Smith goes and says, hey, everybody, <laughs> David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim. He didn't say seer stone. He said Urim and Thummim. And then David Whitmer says, no, he didn't say Urim and Thummim. I said seer stone. And so then there's this conflict between the two of them as to whether David Whitmer said Seerstone or whether David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim. And once again, I've been doing this for four episodes now, and I keep saying Urim and Thummim when actually I mean Seerstone because that was the term that came to be used to describe the Seerstone was Urim and Thummim. So even if David Whitmer did slip and actually say Urim and Thummim, I don't think it means that suddenly he's contradicting his testimony about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. And yet this appears to be what Thomas Wood Smith wants to say. And it also appears to be what these two BYU professors want to say. So there's an argument between Thomas Wood Smith and David Whitmer over whether in a personal interview, David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim or Seerstone. And this is apparently the best evidence they have of how it was that David Whitmer gave inconsistent accounts about how Joseph Smith translated and the instruments he used. Now that I've said all that, let's read this account. 
David Whitmer gave inconsistent accounts of the instrument used to translate. Okay, and Thomas Wood Smith is going to be there, Exhibit A. Thomas Wood Smith, in a published response about an interview he had with David Whitmer, see, he has the interview and then he publishes it, who told him, that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim in translating the Book of Mormon. You see, there it is. David Whitmer slipped up and said Urim and Thummim. So Thomas Wood Smith wrote, When I first read Mr. Trauberg's paper in the Herald of November 15th, I thought that I would not notice his attack at all, as I suppose that I was believed by the church to be fair and truthful in my statements of other men's views. Now, honestly, I don't know what he's talking about here. The professors don't give the context. I'm not going to go that deep into it. But basically, this Thomas Wood Smith guy has gone public and said that David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim, and now he's being called out on that and saying, no, he got it wrong, that David Whitmer really didn't say Urim and Thummim. So he says, I thought that I would not notice his attack at all, as I supposed that I was believed by the church to be fair and truthful in my statements of other men's views. So in other words, hey, I'm fair, I'm truthful when I state what other people say to me. In other words, I'm fair and I'm truthful when I say that David Whitmer actually said Urim and Thummim and not Seerstone. And then he says, I shall make this reply only, that unless my interview with David Whitmer in January 1876 was only a dream, or that I failed to understand plain English, I believed then and since and now that he said that Joseph possessed and used the Urim and Thummim in the translation of the inscriptions referred to. And I remember of being much pleased with that statement, as I had heard of the seer stone being used. So in other words, he goes and he talks to David Whitmer. He, Thomas Wood Smith, as of 1876, obviously believes that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim and not the seer stone. And he's been reading all these statements by David Whitmer, where David Whitmer says that Joseph Smith actually used a seer stone. We know this because he says he was much pleased when he says that David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim and not seer stone. Going back to the statement now by Thomas Wood Smith about his interview with David Whitmer. And I remember of being much pleased with that statement as I had heard of the seer stone being used. And unless I dreamed the interview or very soon after failed to recollect the occasion, i.e. between the interview and apparently the time he wrote it down, there was some time in between the two, he, David Whitmer, described the form and size of the said Urim and Thummim. The nearest approach to a retraction of my testimony as given publicly in many places from the stand from January 1876 till now is that unless I altogether misunderstood Father Whitmer on this point, he said the translation was done by the aid of the Urim and Thummim. So apparently he's referring to a retraction, which is what David Whitmer wants from this Thomas Wood Smith guy to retract his statement that David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim when actually David Whitmer said Seerstone. And now Thomas Wood Smith has been going around publicly and repeating this statement that he says David Whitmer told him. The nearest approach to a retraction of my testimony, as given publicly in many places from the stand, so in church, from January 1876 till now, is that unless I altogether misunderstood Father Whitmer on this point, he said the translation was done by the aid of the Urim and Thummim. If he says he did not intend to convey such an impression to my mind, then I say I regret that I misunderstood him and unintentionally have misrepresented him, but that I understood him as represented by me frequently, I still affirm. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a tempest in a teapot. So here goes this guy to David Whitmer, 
who doesn't like it that he says Searstone. He wants him to say Urim and Thummim. He has an interview with David Whitmer. He comes away from this interview, and he says that David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim, and now he goes around and he's publicly saying that David Whitmer said Urim and Thummim, and David Whitmer gets wind of it and says, hey, I need a retraction from you because I never said Urim and Thummim. I said Searstone, and this guy's saying, hey, unless it was a dream or I imagined it, you said Urim and Thummim. So, hey, it's Urim and Thummim. And the fact that you are now telling me, in other words, the guy that I had the interview with, that you're telling me that I misunderstood, that he didn't say Urim and Thummim, he said Seerstone. And if I thought he said Urim and Thummim, then I was misunderstanding him. That if the guy himself, David Whitmer, says that, it doesn't make any difference because he said Urim and Thummim. At the end, like he says, but that I understood him as represented by me frequently, I still affirm, I understood exactly what he was saying. It was Urim and Thummim. Now, not only does this show how poor the evidence is that these two BYU professors have to go to in order to show that David Whitmer was inconsistent about the instrument that Joseph Smith used to translate, it also shows that this was a hugely controversial issue at the time. That by 1876, it is well established that Joseph Smith did not use a seer stone. He used a Urim and Thummim. Okay, he used the spectacles to translate the Book of Mormon. That is why this is such a hot button issue, even that relatively early on in church history. And even though David Whitmer is still alive at the time and is vociferously calling for a recantation because obviously this guy got it wrong, that David Whitmer never said that, or if David Whitmer did say it, he didn't mean to say that, he accidentally slipped up and said something else, or that this guy got the wrong interpretation or idea or meaning from what it was that David Whitmer said, David Whitmer's the witness. This guy is trying to use David Whitmer's words against him in order to support the now dominant narrative that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim, as that phrase has come to be understood, in the face of the witness himself, David Whitmer, who says, no, Searstone, Searstone, Searstone. It's a very interesting exchange and one from which we can learn a lot, not only about David Whitmer, but also about how controversial this issue had become even as of 1876, how firmly entrenched the dominant narrative had become even as of that time, and the lengths to which these two BYU professors will go in order to find evidence to support their assertion that David Whitmer gave inconsistent accounts of the instrument used to translate. And so now we get to the final reason that the two BYU professors give for why it is that we cannot trust David Whitmer's testimony regarding how it was Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. And this is the quote that we began with. This is the quote from the paper that brought this paper to my attention at the outset. Finally, that's what they say in their paper, finally, because this is the final reason that they have. Finally, the testimony of David Whitmer simply does not accord with the divine pattern, which of course these two BYU professors know does not accord with the divine pattern. If Joseph Smith translated everything that is now in the Book of Mormon without using the gold plates, as David Whitmer says, we are left to wonder why the plates were necessary in the first place. And then they go on with their extended argument about how it doesn't make any sense that Joseph Smith did not use the gold plates to translate when so much effort and labor and time went into the creation of the gold plates in the first place by the Nephites, the lugging around of the gold plates by Moroni, the burial, the appearance of Moroni, etc. Why were the gold plates necessary in the first place if Joseph Smith did not look at the gold plates while he was translating the Book of Mormon? That is the question. That is the $64 question. But as I said at the outset, 
these BYU professors are using this as an argument for why it is that Joseph Smith did use the gold plates when he translated. He must have looked at the gold plates, otherwise why have them? But now that the church in their official essay has admitted the fact that at least one of the methods that Joseph Smith used to translate was by putting a stone in a hat and putting his face over the hat, this particular argument becomes a two-edged sword because now it cuts the other way. And so we ask, now that the church has acknowledged the fact that so many of the witnesses to Joseph Smith's translation talk about the stone in the hat method, why did he have those gold plates? Why were they necessary? So, that ends this paper by the BYU professors. And I want to close out this fourth and final podcast on Lost in Translation with a couple of more observations. The first is that, as we have discussed, David Whitmer is not the only witness who says that Joseph Smith put his face in a hat and translated the Book of Mormon by use of the divine illuminations projected from his seer stone. We have talked about all the other witnesses that I can find who talk about the subject all have in common a stone, most of them say a seer stone, but a stone and a hat. Not only David Whitmer, but also Martin Harris, also Oliver Cowdery, also Emma Smith, also Joseph Knight Sr., also William Smith. All of them mention the hat. In addition to those testimonies, I want to add the testimony from the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon itself describes the method that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, as you probably know, has no compunction about making predictions regarding Joseph Smith. I think most of us are aware that 2 Nephi chapter 3 predicts Joseph Smith by saying that in the last days a seer would arise whose name would be Joseph and his father's name would be Joseph and that he would be a choice seer unto the fruit of thy loins. And it talks about this pretty much throughout chapter 3, but if you look at verses 14 and 15, you'll find a thumbnail version of the entire prophecy. And thus prophesied Joseph, that's Joseph of old, that's Joseph in Genesis, that's Joseph in Egypt, that Joseph. And thus prophesied Joseph, saying, Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise which I have obtained of the Lord, of the fruit of my loins, shall be fulfilled. Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise, and his name shall be called after me. So in other words, his name will be Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father. So his father's name will be Joseph. Well, let's see, Joseph Smith Jr. and Joseph Smith Sr. Yeah, that fits. And he shall be like unto me. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, that's talking about the Book of Mormon now, by the power of the Lord shall bring my people unto salvation. So we can see that the Book of Mormon can make very clear and precise predictions regarding Joseph Smith and his bringing forth of the Book of Mormon. Now, if we go to Alma 37, we'll find a prediction, not just about the Book of Mormon as in 2 Nephi 3, but about the method that Joseph Smith would use to translate the Book of Mormon. And I want to read this now because here I see the Book of Mormon as bearing witness or at least giving us information as to how it was that Joseph Smith translated. And significantly, I think it accords with the testimony of the other witnesses who talked about Joseph Smith translating using a stone in a hat. Starting in verse 23, and the Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light that I may discover unto my people who serve me, that I may discover unto them the works of their brethren, yea, their secret works, their works of darkness, and their wickedness and abomination. So that is a very cryptic passage. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense until and unless you understand how it was that Joseph Smith actually translated or claimed to translate the Book of Mormon by putting his seer stone into a hat and then in the darkness 
the light would shine. Again, the first part of Alma 37, verse 23, And the Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone, which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. It's my position that this is an added testimony, even a scriptural testimony, regarding the manner in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Now, there's another interesting part about this passage because a lot of times the Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith used are also called interpreters. In fact, it's sometimes said that the Nephites would call the Urim and Thummim the interpreters, and that's plural, interpreters. This passage talks about interpreters. In fact, verse 24, which continues the passage I just read, and now, my son, these interpreters, plural, were prepared that the word of God might be fulfilled. Now, when I hear interpreters, plural, I think of Urim and Thummim as two stones. It doesn't seem to make sense to call one stone interpreters, plural. Why would Joseph Smith or any of the witnesses refer to his one seer stone as interpreters? Well, a possible answer to that question can be found in this very passage, because this passage from Alma 37 refers to this one stone as interpreters, plural. Let me read it to you again, and for context, let me read the end of verse 21. That all their wickedness and abominations may be made manifest unto this people, yea, and that ye preserve these interpreters, plural. And then I'm going to skip verse 22, and then go on with verse 23 and 24. And the Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone. See, that's singular, a stone. I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone, which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. And then going down to verse 24, And now, my son, these interpreters, plural, were prepared that the word of God might be fulfilled. So even in this passage in the Book of Mormon, we find that interpreters, a seemingly plural term, is used to describe a single stone. And my suggestion is that even as the Book of Mormon sets forth this usage, of calling a single stone by a plural name interpreters, that the witnesses to the Book of Mormon translation who refer to Joseph Smith as using interpreters plural may well have just been using it to describe a single stone, i.e. his seer stone, which he placed into the hat in order to dictate. Now, finally, earlier in this podcast, I talked about the loose translation versus the tight translation theories of the Book of Mormon. It is clear that the two BYU professors who wrote that article back in the year 2000 want to promote the loose translation model. And in fact, that is what I have normally heard in the church, in most church settings, that there is a loose translation model of the Book of Mormon translation. And the reason for that is because a loose translation model covers a multitude of sins. Did Joseph Smith make changes into the text of the Book of Mormon after it came off the press? Yes, he did. And some of those were not just punctuation and syntax. He made substantive doctrinal changes to the Book of Mormon after it came off the press. Well, how do we account for that? Because it was a loose translation. And so Joseph Smith, as a prophet, was able to clarify what it was that he actually intended to say in his original dictation. Why? Because it was a loose translation. If God is actually giving him the language word for word, as some of the witnesses seem to describe, that sounds more like a tight translation and doesn't account for why it is that Joseph Smith would want to change the words that God gave to him by revelation in the initial dictation. There are a number of instances of things like this where a loose translation 
is very helpful to come to the rescue for the believer in the Book of Mormon. And it is certainly the position that these two BYU professors want to promote. And they link this loose translation theory to section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants and the injunction to study it out in your mind. To them, study it out in your mind is synonymous with a loose translation theory. And there may be some merit to that. But this is an argument that has been going on ever since the Book of Mormon came off the press among Mormons. Was it a loose translation? Was it a tight translation? In some ways, it seems like a loose translation, i.e. we need a loose translation to make it more believable. In other ways, it seems like it needs to have a tight translation when it comes to spelling out names of people or animals that have never ever been known before, such as curulums and cumums. How do you spell that out in the Book of Mormon unless you have a tight translation? If you are promoting chiasmus in the Book of Mormon as an evidence of its authenticity, and ancientness, how do you account for chiasm in the Book of Mormon unless you have, to a certain degree, a tight translation? If it's a loose translation, the chiastic structure will be lost. Now, it's a simple enough thing for us to sit back in our armchairs almost 200 years after the Book of Mormon was dictated and argue about whether it was a loose translation or a tight translation. The thing I want to point out here is that these two BYU professors' position that it was a loose translation is contradicted by Joseph Smith himself. And this is something that only occurred to me as I was preparing for this podcast. They've talked about section 9 in the Doctrine and Covenants, where it talks about study it out in your mind. Let's go to section 10 now of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the section that explains why it is that Joseph Smith is not going to retranslate those lost 116 pages. You all know the story, but to give you a brief overview, Martin Harris has lost the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon dictation, and now Joseph Smith has a huge problem. How is he going to cover that same material in the Book of Mormon translation now that those 116 pages have gotten out of his grasp? Is he going to try and do it again? And if so, what problems does that run into? Now, a non-believer or a person who is suspicious, such as Lucy Harris, might think, well, we'll see if Joseph Smith can really dictate by the power of God. And if he can really dictate by the power of God, then he will be able to dictate word for word once again this 116 pages that I stole. We can compare them, and if they match up, hey, I'll be a believer too. But if they don't match up, then we know that Joseph Smith is just making it up. And we know the way that Joseph Smith got around retranslating the exact plates from which the 116 pages came. He said there was a separate set of plates, the small plates of Nephi, which covered the same time period, but were not an abridgment by Mormon, but a first-hand account by Nephi and the subsequent possessors of the plate, such as his brother Jacob, etc. But the point I'm getting at is why did Joseph not retranslate those 116 pages? Well, section 10 gives us the answer. And what section 10 says is not that Joseph Smith was translating by studying it out in his mind and it was a loose translation and he was just cloaking the divine impulses and thoughts with his own language and therefore of course it wouldn't match up with 116 pages. It might be similar in idea and content but it would not match it exactly. That's not the reason given in section 10. The reason given in section 10 is because if Joseph Smith retranslated those 116 pages they would not match because, not because of a loose translation, but because the people who have the 116 pages have already changed the language on them. And therefore, and therefore, 
it would not match up. Now let me make a parenthetical note here. That explanation doesn't make any sense. This is an excuse like the dog ate my homework. It doesn't make any sense. This is 1828. There are no word processors. There is no whiteout. The 116 pages are written in ink on fool's cap paper. You can't just make changes in the 116 pages without it being completely obvious to anybody who looks at it that you've made changes. You can't erase the words and change them. You can't line them out and change them without it being obvious that they have been changed. So that is an excuse that doesn't make any sense to my mind. But once again, the point I'm driving at is that the reason given by Joseph Smith, and if you believe that Doctrine and Covenant section 10 was a true revelation from God, it only makes the issue thornier because now it's God saying it, not just Joseph Smith. But Joseph Smith and God are presenting as if Joseph Smith could retranslate the 116 pages word for word. And it is only because those wicked people who took the 116 pages originally had made changes in them that it would not line up word for word. Therefore, the inescapable conclusion is that Joseph Smith presented as being able to redictate the 116 pages word for word. Let's go to section 10, starting in verse 6. Behold, they have sought to destroy you. Yea, even the man in whom you have trusted, that would be Martin Harris, yea, even the man in whom you have trusted has sought to destroy you. And for this cause I said that he is a wicked man. For he has sought to take away the things wherewith you have been entrusted, and he has also sought to destroy your gift. And because you have delivered the writings into his hands, behold, wicked men have taken them from you. Therefore you have delivered them up, yea, that which was sacred, unto wickedness. And behold, now here's the reason, right, starting in verse 10 of section 10, an easy reference to remember, section 10, verse 10. And behold, Satan hath put it into their hearts to alter the words which you have caused to be written. Once again, how are they going to alter those words without it being immediately obvious from anybody who looks at it that they've altered the words? That is not explained. And behold, Satan hath put it into their hearts to alter the words which you have caused to be written, or which you have translated, which have gone out of your hands. And behold, I say unto you that because they have altered the words, notice the past tense here, as of the time that God is giving this revelation to Joseph Smith, God who presumably knows all things, including what has happened to these lost 116 pages, knows that they have already altered the words on the 116 pages. God isn't going to tell them where they're hidden or how to get them back, but he is going to tell them that they have already altered those words. Once again, in verse 11, And behold, I say unto you, that because they have altered the words, they read contrary from that which you translated and caused to be written. And on this wise, the devil has sought to lay a cunning plan that he may destroy this work. Skipping to verse 15, For behold, he, Satan, has put it into their hearts to get thee to tempt the Lord thy God in asking to translate it over again. And then, behold, they say and think in their hearts, we will see if God has given him power to translate. If so, he will also give him power again. And if God giveth him power again, or if he translates again, or in other words, if he bringeth forth the same words, see, this is what Joseph Smith is presenting. This is what God is presenting, is that Joseph Smith could dictate it again. He could retranslate it, and he could retranslate it so tightly, in such a tight method that it would bring forth exactly the same words. And if he translates again, or in other words, if he bringeth forth the same words, behold, we have the same with us, and we have altered them. Once again, past tense.
Therefore, they will not agree the words of the first translation in the lost 116 pages versus the new translation, which Joseph Smith never made, but which he's presenting as he could do it. He's capable of doing it word for word. Therefore, and that's a key word in verse 18. Therefore, they will not agree. Why won't they agree? Not because Joseph Smith can't translate them word for word, but because they have altered them so that they would not match. They would not have to alter them so that they would not match if Joseph Smith's translation didn't match in the first place. See what I'm getting at? Therefore, they will not agree. And we will say that he has lied in his words and that he has no gift and that he has no power. Therefore, we will destroy him and also the work. And we will do this that we may not be ashamed to the end and that we may get glory of the world. So there you see that regardless of what these two BYU professors present as Joseph Smith having a loose translation model, and regardless of what anybody else says about Joseph Smith using a loose translation model, the fact is that Joseph Smith presents himself as being able to give a tight translation model. So tight, in fact, that he claims, or God claims for him, that he could retranslate the lost 116 pages word for word. And the only reason he doesn't is because the people who stole them have already altered the words on those 116 pages. It doesn't make any sense in real life, but that's the excuse that's being given. They have already altered them, and therefore, Joseph Smith's word-for-word identical dictation of the lost 116 pages, therefore, that retranslation would not match the lost 116 pages, but only because the people who stole those 116 pages have already altered the words on them. So now we're reaching the conclusion of part four, the final part of Lost in Translation. It has been a total of approximately five hours of material in which we have plumbed the depths. Not all the depths by any means. This is not exhaustive. This is not encyclopedic. But it does deal with many of the issues related to the translation of the Book of Mormon. I've learned a lot in this process. I've come to a lot of insights in this process, including the one that I just gave you, that had not occurred to me prior to commencing preparation for this podcast. So I've learned a lot from this podcast. I hope you may have learned a thing or two as well and that it has been worth your time and that you've enjoyed listening to it. But now before I close, I'd like to share something personal with my listeners and it's about money. Please don't turn off the podcast yet. I have, if I'm going to be totally honest with you right now, I have been knocking myself out with research, with podcasting, with editing, with producing and publishing these podcasts, especially so in these last four podcasts, Lost in Translation. I have, for the last several months, been putting out a podcast pretty much, I think, every single week. It takes an exorbitant amount of time, effort, energy to put out these podcasts. And I have been having an internal argument with myself about the frequency with which I've been putting up podcasts. Part of me is saying, you don't need to be putting out one every week. You need to relax. You need to take it easier. You can put it out one every two weeks, one every three weeks. And yet the other part of me does not listen. The other part of me wants to continue because I have a lot of material to cover. And I want to keep putting out podcasts so that I can try and cover all the material that I want to present. And it was in the middle of this conflict that I've been experiencing that I found out just the other day from Bill Reel that during the first part of this year, 2020, donations to Radio Free Mormon are actually down from what they were at this time last year. Now, I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for me. I'm not asking for anybody to cry me a river. What I am asking for you to do is to donate to Radio Free Mormon if you like what you're hearing. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 